Well, uh, who's ready for Christmas? Yeah, there's a few. I see a lot of heads hanging right now. Um, a little bit of guilt and shame. Uh, I, I love the, the feel of Christmas, don't you? I think even singing these songs, you, you, you experience a bit of the feeling of Christmas. There was a kind of an emotional stirring in our hearts, but I, I love more than just the feeling of Christmas. It's been famously sung that it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I, I really love the look of Christmas, and it's impossible to avoid seeing Christmas everywhere you go at this time of the year. We see Christmas in a variety of different ways, and you see Christmas isn't just something we talk about. It's not just a feeling that we talk about having. It's something that's embodied in a variety of different forms. It's something that is expressed and seen visibly. That ethos, that attitude, that essence of Christmas is packaged in particular ways that are familiar to us. Some of those familiar things are things like Christmas decorations, right? I mean, you look around the streets and you see Christmas decorations on people's lawns. You see lights on people's houses and you see the look of Christmas. You walk into people's homes and you see particular colors. You see the colors of Christmas, the reds and the greens and the golds and all of those things. You see the trees, decorated and beautiful, the expressions of Christmas, the displays of Christmas and and. and, and For you kids in here, what are you waiting to open on Christmas morning? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. Presents. That's right. Lots of presents, right? Of course. All of these things are visible displays of what Christmas, in some sense, is intending to teach us, to remind us of. We don't simply describe Christmas with words. We display it with physical realities. Actions speak louder than words. This is what the Bible reminds us of over and over. The Bible cares very little for empty talk, and it cares much more for active obedience. What we believe needs to be expressed and demonstrated in behavior, external ways. You see, true inner humility, as we saw last week, always produces what we see this week, a true outer obedience, an external obedience, something that can be visibly seen And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has been describing for us what we call the incarnation, the reality that God became flesh. The idea of God's humility in eternity past, the attitude of his humility, didn't just stay with empty words, it was seen and expressed in a visible display on what we call a Christmas morning, the first Christmas morning. Paul presents to us this picture of Jesus. This true, real life action of God that Jesus, he left heaven, he left his place of glory with the Father, and he came here to this earth. And this morning we look at specifically why he came here, what it meant that he came here, and what he would accomplish in coming here. And the purpose this morning is that we might see his humility in action and that we would go and do the same. I want to read. Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 5 and read down to verse 8. Paul says this, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see that that attitude of humility is expressed in an action, a life of outer obedience. And so as we look at the text together this morning, I'm going to give you three points. The first one is this. Jesus is the example that leads to our action. And here's how we see that first. Jesus humbly became a servant that we might serve others. At the very beginning of verse 7, Paul begins to talk about what exactly Jesus did on this Christmas morning. It says that he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. We looked last week a little bit at what it meant that Jesus would, would become nothing, make himself nothing, that he would empty himself, that he divested himself, not of his deity, but of the privilege and prerogative to exercise some of his divine rights. The emptying, the being made nothing, is actually explained here. You see, the text tells us that it's less about what Jesus gave up and more about what Jesus is willing to take on. That Jesus was willing to become a human, to put on a robe of human flesh. But more than that, it's the essence of what he came to do and what he came to be, and that's described here as a servant, the form of a servant. Just in the same way he was in the form of God, the essence and nature of God, he took upon himself the nature, the essence of a servant. It was the disposition that he took as he looked at the world around him. He came not to be served, but to serve. Putting aside his rights to be served, he came to lovingly address the needs of humanity. The disciples that Jesus was constantly pouring himself into, they're constantly, if you read through the Gospels, especially kind of towards the end of the life and ministry of Jesus, they're kind of jockeying for position. They see Jesus as the supreme authority. They see him as being the, the king that was promised to the people of God. And they begin to realize that maybe they have the potential to be given a, a greater degree of authority and position than the disciples around them. This is actually the context of John 13, when Jesus teaches his disciples about his role, when he, when he stoops down to wash the feet of his disciples, that lowly, humble position. They've been in the, this place of jockeying for position. I mean, they do it so much that, that James and, and John, they actually send their mom to go tell Jesus to give him a position of authority. This idea of being served, of wanting authority, of wanting to wield power over others is inherent in the sinful human heart. We're all kind of bent towards that. We can be so prideful, think about this, as to pursue for personal gain positions of authority when God, who holds all authority, was humbly willing to pursue a position of lowliness for our great gain. The model here is of a servant, of what Jesus came to do, and it reminds us of who we're called to be. As the people of God, we're called not to look for others to serve us, but to serve them. But to really get kind of into the, the nitty-gritty of this, we have to understand what true service looks like because service isn't simply external. It's not just the actions we do. It does involve a, a humble attitude and disposition like the disposition of Jesus, this essence of serving. Let me just give you a few things that this is not. It's helpful sometimes when we want to understand what, what, what something means is to look at the, the opposite, what it's not. So true service means first, I'm not looking for recognition. This is what true service is. I, I'm not in this for recognition. I'm not, in other words, wanting to be noticed. 
This is not, my, my good deeds, my good works are not where I'm finding my value, my worth, my identity. I'm not looking um, to be recognized because I do not care what people think of me. It's not about me at all. True service means I'm not looking for recognition. Secondly, notice this, the true service is not looking for payback. Oftentimes, we want to serve others, but it, it comes right with some qualifications, it comes, maybe even if they're unspoken, with the, the understanding that, hey, you know what? Uh, I scratched your back, you're going to scratch mine, right? I helped you out. Hey, one day I'm going to be calling in that favor. We aren't to look at serving as if we're making deposits in a bank at- account that we then come alongside and, and eventually withdraw from. That's not the way we're to look at service. That's not in any way what Jesus did. And true service means this. Thirdly, I'm not looking for praise. This is beyond recognition. This is beyond simply being noticed. There are some of us, and and, and if we're honest, all of us at times struggle in our hearts with longing for glory and praise and honor. We do things for the explicit purpose of being recognized and for the purpose of praise. We long for that, and it's one of the ways that our heart is moved away from true service So let me tell you what true service does mean. Let me give you three things. True service means seeking the good of another. The purpose is the good of another. That's what Jesus demonstrates, their interest above mine. Again, I quoted from it earlier, Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the picture of what it means to to live a life and to serve for the good of somebody else. The second thing that true serving is, it is seeking to please the Father, God in heaven. We're not looking for recognition from others. We're not seeking to be people pleasers. But in our hearts, if we're truly serving others from a biblical perspective, we are seeking to please the Father. Jesus put it like this in John 6, 38. He said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying in essence there that he exists for the pleasure of the Father And thirdly, true service is seeking the glory of God. Not just to please Him, but to see Him glorified, to see His reputation magnified across the earth. Jesus said this in John 14, 13. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, Jesus, everything He did had one sole purpose. It was to bring glory to His Father in heaven. So when we think of serving, we need to look at Jesus, and here's what we're reminded of, that serving, listen, it's less about getting and more about giving. Giving really is a great term to to use in your life for what it means to serve, this idea of what you're willing to give. And so let me just help you with some practical things at this time of the season. Um, You need to give. You can give in three particular areas. Let me give you three buckets. Give of your time. Give your time to those around you. Maybe, Maybe identify somebody in your life This season who is lonely, this season who maybe has lost loved ones, this season who is is hurting, and give of your time to that individual, to be with them, to invite them into your home, to allow them to celebrate maybe this season with you. Let me give you uh, um, kids something to do. Give your parents some time to sleep in on Christmas morning. (laughs) Amen. All right, we got a few. I know some of you are inside, you're clapping. It's good. 
Secondly, give of your talents, your abilities, the way that God has made you unique or maybe has even just laid some opportunities on your lap that have nothing to do with your actual giftedness or abilities, but it's something you can do. Give of your talents to those who need your expertise. Give of your talents and your efforts to help and serve somebody, even when it's costly to you. Um, I think the Bible says that the truest friend is somebody who helps you move or drives you to the airport. I think it's somewhere in the Bible. Look, in little ways, you have opportunities to give of yourself and to serve others. Shoveling driveways, cleaning homes for people in need, caring for those who are struggling to care for themselves or difficult seasons of life. Let me give you a third category. Give of your treasures. We're so blessed, amen? We've been given so much by God, and what an opportunity God gives us to serve others by giving of our resources, our money, our possessions, there's sweet opportunities to help those who don't have as much, and God allows us to do that with joy in our hearts because He has given everything to us. So let me encourage you, like Jesus, don't wait to be served. Jump at opportunities to serve one another. Secondly, notice this, that Jesus is the example that leads to our action. Jesus humbly became a man that we might sympathize with others. The Word of God moves now away from this idea of being a servant, but really expands upon what Jesus did to empty himself, to make himself nothing. It says this in the, in the Word of God in verse 7, it says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. I mean, just pause there for a minute. Did, did you just hear what the Bible said? That God humbled himself to the point of being born. Now, this is where, listen, the, the, the familiarity with the Christmas story can sometimes kind of just leap right over our heads. The, the wonder of it all, it's amazing to consider that God was willing to be born as a child. Paul, here by the way, in this passage is combating multiple heresies in just a couple of verses and what he's doing is so unique. He's describing his full identity with the human race. He's saying, listen, I have made myself just like you to identify with you in every way. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. And it tells us that he fully participated in our human experience. Jesus was truly man. Listen to this but not merely man. He did not set aside his deity, but he did take upon himself humanity. He's not 50-50 God and man. He's 100% man and 100% God. And just consider the reality at this time of the season of this beautiful line of poetry which says this, Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. The astounding wonder of the incarnation. When he was born... God the Son placed the exercise of all of His powerfulness and His all-presence and His all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not lose it. He did not give up those attributes. He submitted their exercise in this life to the Father's discretion. And the text here tells us two things about Him becoming a man. He's made in the likeness of men. And that's an important term. It's describing the inner nature of humanity, the, the essence of humanity. He was 100% man while remaining 100% God. 
He wasn't pretending to be a human being as some of the heretics in the past have proposed. It says here too, not only was he in the likeness of, human, of, uh, of men, but he was found in human form. But the word that Paul chooses for this idea of form here, it actually has less to do with essence as, as it talked about earlier in the previous verses about him being found in the form of God. And it speaks to the external reality of who Jesus was. In other words, he actually took upon real human flesh. There was heresies in the past that said that Jesus just appeared to take on human flesh. Paul is saying, no, no, don't you understand? He actually took on human flesh. The same word is used in the relationship between making an idol out of a a perceived God. So you're carving a physical image. It's that physical reality that Paul is speaking of here. He has the essence and the physical reality of humanity. And this mystery is utterly astounding. It's beyond any earthly analogy or human understanding. I was trying to process this past week what it means or how we can kind of understand that God would become a man. And honestly, I can't really think of anything that compares, but I'm going to attempt something. Listen, don't, don't push the analogies too far, but this is more for the kids. Kids, you ready for this? Can you imagine that you as a human being, you look down at a worm And you decided that you were going to make yourself a worm. You were going to take on the form of a worm and all of the limitations of being a worm. you got to squirm around in the dirt. you got to weave your way through. You can't speak. You can't hear. I don't think. I don't know much about worms, to be honest with you. But whatever it means to be a worm, you decided, after knowing all of what it means to be this, a human being, all of the benefits and the privileges, everything that it affords to you, you decided to lay that aside for a season and to become a worm. If you can even begin to grasp what that might be like, you have just scratched the surface of what it was like for God to become a human being. But you see, when we think about the incarnation, it reminds us of some things, and it actually has some very important implications for us. You say, why would he do this? There's there's a number of reasons, but listen, one of the primary implications of the incarnation is Christ's astounding capacity to sympathize with us, to understand our problem and our plight, our difficulties and our struggles, our pain and our sorrows. You see, the Son of God subjected himself to his own creation and its physical laws. All of its ups and downs, he grew in wisdom and stature, the word of God says. God grew in wisdom and stature as a human being. He would be taught things he did not know. He walked like a baby before he walked like a man. He thought and talked like a baby before he thought and talked like a man. The growing pains of the Son of God were just as real for him as they were for us. He experienced the full reality of being human, pain and suffering, growth and joy, sweat and tears, toil and tiredness, even temptation, yet without sin. Jesus Christ lived with a human body, mind and soul, with all of their limitations except for sin. He added humanity while never surrendering his deity. This is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. You want, me, you want to know what else is mind-boggling? Just consider this for a minute. The wedding of these two natures was permanent. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet in one person forever and ever and ever. 
perpetual reminder, listen, of what God did for his creation. So in our frail humanity, you say, what does this matter for me? In our frail humanity, we do not have a God who doesn't get it. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus does not, listen, this is so important. Jesus does not just imagine how his children feel. He feels it. We're all sometimes under incredible pressure. We're all struggling. There's lots of pains and toil in this life. We may feel, we may be tempted to even say, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody really cares about what I'm dealing with. You want to know what the biblical answer is? Jesus does. He knows, he understands, and he cares. And by the way, he understands more than you could possibly realize. I love this illustration. It's been used in the past by a number of different people. But you want to know how Jesus can sympathize with you? You say, well, he's God, and he didn't quite understand what it's like to be human. That's not what this is telling us. It's telling us that he did. He, he understood, actually, the full extent of what it means to be human in a way that you and I actually can't possibly grasp. The, the, the analogy is like that of a weightlifter. Think of a power lifter in the Olympics. They, they got those massive weights on the bars, and they pull up that weight. You know, the majority of those people do not get the weight above their head, not when you get to the finals, not when you get to the heaviest weights, the world record kind of weights. And it's been kind of phrased like this. It's, it's not those who fail who feel the whole weight and pressure. It's the one who succeeds. Jesus thrust the whole weight of humanity upon his shoulders. He understood like none of us possibly could. He bore something that we could not possibly bear, and so he understands in a far more deeper way than we possibly could grasp. He condescended, and I mean that in the positive sense of that word. He lowered himself He came down to our level, and he entered into our weakness, our struggle, and he did it in order to sympathize with us. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that the the great news of him sympathizing with us is that we can draw near to him now because he gets it. We can draw near and find mercy and help in our time of need, that God says, listen, I know what you're going through. I completely get it. Now come near to me and watch how I supply and meet every one of your needs. When we see how much he sympathizes with us, listen, we, we can begin in new ways to sympathize with others. Their problems can become our problems. And the greatest way we condescend into people's lives like Jesus, listen, is not kind of entering into all of the fun, all of that's good. It's actually entering into their struggles, their difficulties. That's what Jesus did for us. We weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. You see, the call of Scripture is to come alongside and sympathize with others. I'm seeing this in a variety of different ways in the life of this church. I'm watching this in small groups across our church, in individual lives, in discipleship relationships. As opportunities arise, people entering into difficulty, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ. I'd encourage you in this season to be looking for these opportunities. You have to look for people's problems if you're going to be willing to sympathize with them. Here's the second thing you need to do. You need to listen. 
One of the greatest ways of growing in sympathy is coming alongside and not just kind of brushing over them quickly, not pushing them to the side saying, yeah, yeah, that's not that big of a... It's actually listening with an open ear and a soft heart, a willingness to hear from others what's going on and allowing the Spirit of God to soften our hearts even more, to uniting our hearts with their struggles and their trials, for relating to them on a different level. And for some of you, let me address the opposite end of the struggle. You need to let people in. You need to let people in. You need to let people sympathize with you by stopping holding your card so close to the chest, by stopping yourself from simply saying, you know what, this is my problem to bear. Jesus sympathizes with you. He knows and he understands. And he wants you to sympathize with others and others to sympathize with you. When we look at the incarnation and we see the humility of Jesus, it doesn't just remind us that he condescended to sympathize, it reminds us that he condescended to save. You see, there is a deeper reason why he wanted to sympathize with our weakness. It was so that he could provide the great solution to our problem. We see that in Jesus is the example that leads to our action in that Jesus humbly became a sacrifice that we might sacrifice for others. It says here that he was found in human form, he humbled himself. Look at how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The obedience of Jesus Christ really has two different faucets. There are two kinds of obedience, in other words, that made Jesus a perfect sacrifice for us. One is what theologians call the act of obedience of Christ. That is what he must do. In other words, he must be perfect. He must perfectly fulfill the law. Obedience reminds us that Jesus had to be perfectly obedient to God. He had to come and in every way from the heart, obey every law of God. Never deviate, never rebel, never turn away. You see, here's the problem. If Jesus had any sin at all, any sin, it would have made his sacrifice insufficient and inadequate. What was required was a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. Any hint or stain of sin would have disqualified Jesus as the perfect sacrifice and would have left us all hopeless for all eternity, having to pay for our own sin. It was disobedience that separated man from God, Adam, our own sin. It is only perfect obedience that can reconcile man to God. The second Adam, Jesus. You see, we need perfect obedience to be in a relationship with God. The problem is is that disqualifies all of us. You see, the law reminds us of something. The scriptures tell us in Galatians 3 that when we look to the law, it actually is teaching us something about ourselves. You see, when we look at the law, it proves our sinful humanity. We look at the law, we look at the requirements, and none of us can meet them. We find ourselves continually falling short, never living up, and we're reminded over and over and over again of how sinful we are, how desperate we are. But the law is a tutor that takes us by the hand and walks us directly into the presence of Christ. You see, from the other side of this, when Jesus Christ looks at the law, it's an opportunity for him to prove his perfect divinity. You think about this, if you could obey the law perfectly, never stumble, never fall at any point in your life from childhood onward, what would you be? God. 
God. That's who you'd be. Jesus looks at the law. He obeys everything perfectly. He never stumbles. He never falls. Every bit of it, not just external but internal, from a heart of love and affection for his Father, he obeys perfectly as only God can do. You see, the Word of God says that we are called as Christians to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. We can't because we aren't. Jesus did because He is. The act of obedience of Jesus gives Him the perfect life that makes Him the perfect sacrifice, but that leads to the second part of His obedience, which is referred to as His passive obedience. It speaks not of what He must do, but what must be done to Him. That He not only has to keep the law perfectly, He must suffer for those who did not keep the law perfectly. And the text tells us here so fascinatingly, notice this, that he became obedient to the point of death. And did you notice this? That there's an extra emphasis here, even death on a cross. Like that's what that is. It's not that he was just obedient to death. He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. You see, why, why that emphasis? Why that heightened sense of wonder and awe and amazement that he would be willing to die and, and, and to be put to death on a piece of wood? See, the manner of his death is so significant because it links us back to Old Testament truth and reality and theology. The emphasis on the cross here emphasizes and enhances the depth of his obedience. Galatians 3.13, referencing back to Deuteronomy 21.23, Paul says this, For cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. A very familiar Old Testament principle. To hang on a tree was a sign that you were cursed. It was an ugly form of death. But you see, God hung on a cross and suffered his own wrath against sin. He who was in the form of God came down to earth, down to a cross, down to the curse. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. Christ redeemed us from the curse. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. He would become a curse for us. You see, in all of the story of the incarnation, there is no greater display of humility than the cross, where Jesus became a sacrifice for us. He was a sacrifice for us, and here's what that means. As we look to his sacrifice in wonder and in awe and in greater, I trust this morning, affection and adoration, here's what it reminds us of. Now we get to live our lives as a living sacrifice for him. Paul calls this in Romans 12 our spiritual act of worship. Lives of spirit-empowered obedience to God the Father, lives that are holy and acceptable to him, set apart from this world and transformed by his love and by his power, by his grace. We sacrifice for others by laying down our lives, by giving, listen, in, in, in moments, by giving what we don't think we can afford to give, by giving more of ourselves than we think is possible, by giving in a way that hurts not just a way that's comfortable, because that's the way that Jesus gave for us. He gave so very much for us, and he calls us to give so very much for others and ultimately for him. We do it like Jesus, out of deep love for Jesus. At Christmas, we remember that God isn't all talk, amen? 
He doesn't give empty promises. He acts. He puts his grace and humility, his kindness and love on full display for all to see. He doesn't declare himself humble. He shows himself humble. And the incarnation reminds us that God became man and that why God became man was so critical. You see, the cradle always led to the cross, which was leading to undo the curse. The action of the incarnation is God's ultimate Christmas display. It's not so much in our lives about decorating our homes with trees and lights and gifts, although that's fun and that's great. It is much more about decorating our lives with serving, sympathizing, and sacrificing for others, as Jesus has done for us. May our lives display our incarnate God this Christmas and for the rest of our lives. I'm going to invite you now to stand, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing uh, one final song together. Let's bow together. God in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you, God, that, God, in many ways, the reason we love to display Christmas in different forms, physical forms, it is in reality a reflection of who you are, that you would display, God, your love and your humility for us by becoming a human being and by living an obedient life and by dying a death, even a death on a cross, on a piece of wood, that you would become a curse for us. God, I pray that our hearts would grow even in this moment with a deeper love and affection for you. God, all of this, all of your word is intended to stir our hearts, to see you for who you are, to love you for what you've done. And God, it is to guide us and to lead us to become more like you. So God, we pray that you would do that. During this season, we have a unique opportunity to have our hearts reoriented, recalibrated to who you are and what you've done. So God, would you do that now, even as we sing this song and we gather even tomorrow night, we meet with family and friends and we go through all of the traditional aspects of Christmas. Lord, may front and center be, oh Lord, the beautiful, the beautiful and precious reality of the incarnation. God, come for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.